Hello, and welcome to Tell Us Your Story, a new podcast from the Institute of Public Affairs. I'm Kian Hussey, Research Fellow at the IPA and the host of this show. In this series, I talk to Australian entrepreneurs to hear their story. We'll discuss what inspired them to start their own business and explore the insights and advice they want to share with enterprising young Australians who wish to create their own opportunities and success. Entrepreneurship and risk-taking are central to the Australian way of life. Despite this, Australians are increasingly seeking the comfort of employment over what's seen as the risky and uncertain path of business creation. But entrepreneurs are needed now more than ever. Don't let your dreams be dreams. The COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated many structural issues, especially for younger Australians who've been at a disadvantage since the global financial crisis. Our future prosperity, our democracy and our very way of life depend on enterprising and innovative Australians. It's vital that we unlock their potential. Today I'm talking to Chris Olwood. Chris is the non-executive chairman of APM Property Group, a real estate investment management firm which he founded in 1996, which was the same year he founded Kuyong Wines. Prior to that, Chris was the founding director of Grocon, Australia's largest privately owned development, construction and funds management company. Chris, thanks for joining me on Tell Us Your Story. How are you today? I'm very well, Ken. Yourself? Yeah, very good, thank you. Good to have you on. Thank you. So I've kind of outlined those three main companies that you've been involved with. I was wondering, can you talk about each of them in turn, you know, how you got started in business and why you got started with particularly APN and Kuyong Wines? Uh, well, Grocon was established in 87 and um, I'd been working in real estate since 1975. So what's that... Um, 45 years. Oh, no, since 1970, actually, so 50 years this year. Yeah. Uh, I sort of tend to discount the bit when I was doing um, residential real estate and property management, and I started in commercial real estate uh, in uh, 1975. So um, 1987, we set up Grocon, and um, they had um, 70%, and the employees had 30% and I had 15% or half of the 30%. Uh, that was the establishment of, of, of Grocon and uh, started with an idea. And uh, I sold out uh, in 1994 and it had been an outrageous uh, success. After uh, 1994, I suppose I sat around sort of thinking, uh, you know, I was fairly wealthy, you know, I didn't know what to sort of do with myself. And uh, somebody said, well, don't waste your skills. I, I, I don't know what my skills were, but they were certainly uh, they were very sort of Melbourne-centric. Uh, yeah. And I'd, we'd broadened our business into New South Wales, so I knew a bit about the, the Sydney market, but uh, don't waste those skills. So um, uh, with Bruno, we set up APN and... Uh, the aim of the game was really just to uh, the sorts of things we'd been involved in, Governor Philip Tower, the casino in Melbourne, 101 Collins Street. Uh, you know, they were very big projects, very, very draining, yeah. um, you know, and uh, I suppose we we're all a little bit tired. So with APN, the decision was really to sort of do something on a smaller scale. Uh, something more focused, and uh, we set about doing that in 1996. And uh, I think we started off with $760,000 worth of loan capital, which uh, Bruno and Bruno Grollo and I put in each. So APN, um, yeah, it, it did what it set out to do. Um, I was essentially the chairman uh, with uh, and part owner with with uh, Andrew Crookshank running it. Um, we started off. We built a private hospital down in Frankston and um, 
we ended up building a 22-storey uh, building in Latrobe Street in Melbourne. But it was a smaller developer. It had a, a project management arm uh, and a development management arm. Yeah. Um, so um, some of the things that people in Melbourne might know, the Royal Melbourne Golf Club, uh, redevelopment, pathology clinics, private hospitals, uh, renovations of existing buildings in the city into into um, apartments. So it was broadly based and offering partnerships and project management skills. And uh, it was very successful. And then in uh, 1998, I think, uh, we were approached by uh, Howard Brenchley to fund a funds management business, which, of course, I knew precious little about. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, we knew Howard. We had good knowledge of the market. Uh, we decided to back him, and so we merged the two businesses back, the development business, the funds management business, and listed the bit I missed out is that after 2001 or 2002, the uh, the business went crazy yeah. and um, <clears throat> became quite sizable. So uh, uh, the reasons for listing were probably to get my, my capital back mm. uh, at the time, but also I remained the, the majority shareholder in APN after the float. It listed at... Um, a dollar a share. I think there are 117 million shares. So we'd turn 760,000 into a 117 million in yeah. uh, in terms of the winery. Well, as I said, I was sort of semi-retired in 1994 and bought a property down on the peninsula and uh, <clears throat> met a couple of young guys that were interested in wine, uh, decided to uh, uh, sponsor them into the business. So uh, we set up Kuyong Wines. I owned 85% and they owned 15% and uh, we started off making Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. I think my real estate skills helped in terms of buying the land at the right price and yeah. building the winery for um, a reasonable sum. Yeah. And later on, I was made an offer I couldn't refuse. So uh, my son had uh, got a bit older. He'd been working in the winery. We had another property with some vines on it. So I set up a business called Ocean 8 with him and, and sold Kuyong Wines. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that sort of gets me to um, how the – did I get the three businesses? Yes, yeah, yeah. On, uh, that was, yeah, that was yeah. the three. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so uh, that's where we're up to. So now I've got a, an interest in uh, APN. I've got an interest in a, a, a medical clinic business uh, with a partner and uh, – and we've got Ocean 8 wine, so which is small but turning quite profitable, which is nice. No, it's quite a quite a varied experience then between medical stuff and wines and and construction and property. Yes, I'm I'm interested in the in the ASX listing. Can you talk a little bit about um about what that process was like? I'd imagine from um you know from what you'd see in the movies that it would be a, a flurry of paperwork and a bit of madness, people running around getting organised. Um, was it like that in reality? Yeah, very, very much so. Um, I can hardly remember it because there were so many accountants and yeah. solicitors involved, yeah. and uh, uh, and uh, you know, with Bruno owning half of one business and me owning hundred percent of the other business, and uh, there were sort of tax implications uh, for everybody. But uh, mm. we decided to to list. Uh, I think. Um, we just felt that the, the funds management business was going to grow uh, and, and uh, get bigger and uh, it had a place in the listing market, whereas the development and construction business was fairly lumpy and, uh, you know, profits were sort of irregular. 
they always seem to be profits. I don't think we made a loss in uh, in APN on the development side, but we decided it was time to sort of get behind the uh, the funds management business and and move that along. The technicals of uh, listing, um, uh, to me, I was sort of in my helicopter by then. I was sort of having a helicopter view of a whole lot of people doing the, yeah, right. the detail yeah. and, and just sort of making sure that the uh, that the um, the thing, I suppose my role's always been to make sure that the thing's heading in the right direction and that people aren't heading off on tangents and that we're, we're focusing on, on outcomes. So uh, yeah. uh, that, that was my role and that. But as I say, I ended up with, I think, 42% of the business or something after the, the float. But I also ended up with my cash back and uh, that was sort of important to me because, um, you know, we, we had put quite a bit of, of cash into it and we were taking sort of quite quite big risks. So I, I wanted to kind of change track a little bit. Can you can you speak about what the challenges are um, starting starting businesses in general? Um, and obviously you've had experience in, in a couple of different industries, like you've said. Um, so we're thinking particularly, um, this podcast is particularly aimed at younger people who are thinking of getting into um, business or who you know might be thinking of starting something. Um, so, so think thinking with them in mind. Are there any? Have they been kind of specific? The challenges have they been specific to each business, or is there anything you've seen that's um, that's consistent between them? I think in starting a business, you've got to understand yourself. Yeah. So you've got to um, have a need to be independent. I think and be free and be a, a price maker rather than a price taker. So I think that's the the first thing that you need to identify about yourself and whether you're capable of doing that. There's nothing wrong with working for people your whole life and fishing with your kids on the weekend, but uh, running your own businesses is full of risk. And a smart guy once said to me, you know, you're really stupid to go into business, but if you are stupid and you can sleep at night, then there's a chance that you'll be successful. So uh, <laughs> so I think understanding yourself and, and what you're capable of and uh, whether you've sort of got the, uh, the constitution to, uh, to absorb the things that come along is, mm. is the main part. I think the second thing would be value, you know, I mean, it, it, and, and remember I am um, probably a couple of generations older than the people listening to this, but uh, I think if you've got a good eye for value and, uh, you know, let's say you're working for somebody else and you say, uh, look, I can do this and I can do it for less and um, I can sleep at night and I can find the money, um, then uh, I think there's always an opportunity for you to succeed. I don't think things will change i think you know people have been moving from village to village with ideas and out of its grown world trade and um, i expect the world will get bigger and um, there'll be big businesses and small businesses um you know to me apn's a, a big business it's it's three billion but it's not as big as some of our competitors and uh, when you look at some of the uh, uh the guys in the tech space and the wealth they've created uh, then it's not in the sexist, sexiest area so i think you have to Maybe thirdly, be satisfied that you've got to build the business off your knowledge base. And <clears throat> your knowledge base, uh, you know, if it's in uh, clothing at the moment, uh, it's certainly not as sexy as, uh, as as tech. But if that's what you understand, you've got to be understand. You've got to be uh, uh, happy with the returns that you'll generate. And if you can't sell, you need to take on a partner. And if you take on a partner, you've got to be able to trust him. Yeah. You know, I have a little bit of difficulty, I think, with uh, with listed businesses and maybe because of my experience and uh, using other people's money just to uh, to generate short-term wealth and uh, you know have no eye to the 
the risk that you're taking on behalf of other people. But uh, so, you know, I think that if you've got a strong moral core, you know, you'll, you'll probably succeed. If you haven't, you'll be a Roman candle and, <laughs> and uh, the thing will sort of engulf you at some point. Yeah. So um, I hope amongst that there's a sort of a few few reasons for continuing with your dream to start your business. And, and it sounded like, based on what you said earlier, that um, kind of leveraging your your skill set and and then diversifying into another industry like you said with the winery you use the kind of experience you have with with real estate and you're able to to get the land at a good price and then um get get the winery built so i guess that's another thing as well for people to keep in mind yes i I think you know as long as you've got those things and you've got a very good business uh, focus um so you know for instance our focus in the wine business is to uh, just produce quality wine we don't do um, restaurants or uh, any of the entertainment business and uh, in the APN business we try to put our clients first in other words um, I don't think we necessarily did that before the GFC but I think post the GFC you know we've generally got a view as that yeah, would, would you do this yourself you know and uh, yeah if you think you'd do it yourself then uh, you know you can survive in that business as well and that seems to be a theme that's come through with a few guests that um you know, put it, thinking of thinking of the client first, um, and, and making sure you're delivering a good service to the client at the end of the day is is the most important thing. Your yeah, service industry is about providing a service, and the public service is about providing a service to the public. And uh, you know, I think a lot of people forget that. So uh, you know, that that that's, that's you know one of the risks uh, going forward. I think, but um, but generally speaking, as long as you've got a sort of strong sense of what's right and wrong, and uh, whatever product you're selling, uh, you know, you're not sort of dudding your client or dudding your customer, then you should have a good chance of success. I'm interested as well what what your thoughts are about the future of the Australian economy because obviously construction and real estate have been um, pretty vital uh, industries and for a lot of families that's where, uh, you know, property, their, their family home is where they've built up a lot of their wealth over the past few decades. Um, do, do you think they'll continue to be dominant? Um, do you think COVID has has changed that at all? Well, I think one thing you have to be careful of is, um, you know, being too negative um, about things. Um, I tend to be on the pessimistic side, so I'm always looking at the risk. But if you sort of take off your uh, dark glasses and you look around, then things tend to improve around you. So it might be a bit ridiculous to say that there's been a lot of office buildings and retail shopping centres uh, built since the Spanish flu, but it's also true, you know. So, yeah, uh, yeah. so sort of uh, COVID um, is a risk. Um, yeah, I think it'll definitely change things at the margin. Uh, and, and sometimes I find that, you know, when markets change, the, uh, the wrong thing gets blamed, um, um, what do I mean by that? I probably mean by that that there's a lot of office space being built in Sydney CBD and Melbourne CBD and um, everybody will blame COVID, but the fact is that there could well have been a potential oversupply. I, I, you know, I, so I, I think the commercial real estate market may move to the suburbs a little bit more, um, but that's a good thing. You know, people want to be closer to their families and, you know, like previous generations, you've heard them all say, you know, well, our grandparents worked hard to give you this lifestyle. Well, they did, you know, so let's not just have their lifestyle. I still think we've got to improve that and enjoy what we're doing. So I think there is a work-life balance. I think it's gone a little bit too far at times, but uh, there is a work, work-life work balance. So I think that suburban real estate 
maybe will do quite well. I can't be a prophet, so I'll use maybe. <laughs> yeah. um, I would have thought that even on Amazon, you know, there, there's going to be a, a, a limit uh, to how much they can sell online and providing populations grow, they will just be another sector of the market. So, you know, I'm, I'm quite keen. In fact, I sort of feel sometimes I might have missed out on some of the shopping centres. I think they've been very heavily oversold. I think people continue to, to shop, you know, perhaps Prior to Amazon, um, people were too keen on shopping centres, you know, and that may be the reason that some of the pricing's been slashed as hard as it has. So it might have been overvalued before it became undervalued. So somewhere in the middle is the median. So I, I, I'm not terribly pessimistic about uh, real estate. Um, I suppose the, the, the industrial real estate seems to go from strength to strength, and I really I don't understand it. I, I, we've got a fund and... Uh, Obviously, Australia imports a lot of um, products, so we, we, we need distribution and we need factories, uh, but we don't manufacture the way we used to. That, that might come back as sort of people question globalisation, but it does seem to be a fairly strong sector. Overlaying all that, you've got the sort of the demographic, you know, which is... Uh, uh, temporarily sort of been put into reverse uh, with, with government policy. So, you know, we, we have had a lot of growth replacing productivity, uh, a lot of um, population growth. And that sort of leaves us to... The, and, uh, the world has become a specialist world, so you're sort of seeing childcare centres in, in property trusts and, uh, and hospitals and private hospitals and um, storage. You know, th there are a few sort of specialist units that didn't, see, didn't uh, exist 20 years ago, so they will probably continue to flourish and there'll be more specialist areas. We tend to keep away from sort of stuff that's heavily government influenced that like sort of aged care and those sorts of things. The, the one that probably scares me most is our reliance on housing and the debt bubble. You know, I don't want to be sort of too negative there, but I'm just reading something the other day, there's something like $300 trillion in residential housing worldwide and um, <clears throat> it just dwarfs any other sector and we're all treating our house a bit like a, an ATM at the moment. So, you know, I hope that continues. One thing I do say to people is that I haven't seen a lot of bargains since 1996 and I think the reason was what used to be called the Greenspan put where every time the market fell, the US Fed would do something to sort of stimulate the market yeah. and uh, <laughs> and that's just keep going and, and now we're down to less than 1%. So I think the big fear for the future is inflation and higher interest rates and debt on housing but once again, I don't want to be a profit. You know, I think that when we look to what we're doing in our business, we we understand that yields are, property yields are, are lower than what they were 10 years ago. We understand that interest rates are, are very, very low uh, and that some of the risks we're taking may have to be managed if the, uh, if the interest rate cycle turns, which it could, you know, three to five years out. So, you know, I would say housing and debt is, is the sleeper, um, but uh, everything else, um, you know, as long as you keep your head about uh, what's about you, uh, be quite good and I think development will be off the, uh, the radar for a while so the supply side should be a little bit more constrained bearing in mind there's already a lot of supply. And just to kind of pivot again thinking again of young people who are um, trying to identify some opportunities where they might um, set something up um, with this kind of you know with the economy going forward is there any um, particular insights you'd give um you know, for, for people thinking of starting out, if they think they've identified a, a good opportunity for a business, um, you know, what, what are the, what are the um, you know, how, how do they go about 
starting it, what are the things they need to keep in mind? Well, you know, younger people become a bit of a mystery when you get to my age, but um, <laughs> I would have thought that things haven't changed, you know. It's really the, uh, the desire to be independent, to to use the skills that you think that you've been given and the skills that you've acquired. And I think if you can do that, the barriers to entry um, are probably quite low in terms of the cost of doing these things with interest rates where they are. Um, but, you know, I think you do have to you do have to have strong selling capabilities. No good having an idea if you can't sell it. So if you can't sell it, you need a partner or you need a good marketing advisor. Uh, but I just don't think um, it's just so much bigger. You know, the, the, the economy is so much bigger. There's, there's so many new, um, well, I don't know what's going to replace the current, you know, how old uh, tech, you know, 30 years old, you know, um, sort of it's post-1989, post I suppose, when, when, when Europe opened up. But, I mean, there just seems to be a, a biotech, healthcare, personal services, the service industry is getting bigger and bigger. Globalisation may lead to a little bit, uh, a bit of a comeback in, in, in manufacturing, local manufacturing, but I don't think it matters whether you're sort of um, a doctor who thinks he can run 20 clinics or a, a toolmaker in a factory who thinks he can do better than what they're doing. I mean, I, I think you've just got to say, yeah, I, I think I can do better. I understand the business. I understand the customer base. I can get to them. And if you can do all those things, and um, then I think you've got a chance. The next part's not to sort of believe your own BS and uh, and sort of, you know, becomes a crap table for some people and they just keep going back and doubling up, doubling up, doubling up until I don't know how many black swan events I've seen, but there's been, um, there's been you know, quite a few. So, and they come quite regularly. And uh, then along with that, you have market corrections. And But we've had, you know, uh, GFC was a big, big recession, but uh, there haven't been many recessions since 1991 in Australia, and that was that was a big one too. So uh, I think you've got to keep a weather eye to the fact that things can go against you. But um, so, that, but I'd say the two things are you know really believe in yourself, believe you've got the capability, and uh, then if you do it, do it as much as you can with your own money and uh, and and buy value. Or get value, and 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 keep one eye on on the opportunities that are arising, and one eye on the black swan events that might be might be arising too. Yeah, you know, like debt is a is a killer. There's no doubt about that. And um, you know, if you don't have too much debt, then um, you know you'll survive. So the cheapest form of investment is really, uh, or cheapest form is capital is 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 retained profits. Which is why you see so many people who, you know, 20, 30 years out are still reinvesting in their own business as they used to. And then they'd sell out and they'd have an enormous capital profit, but they'd lived a hard life. Mm. You know, I mean, they'd, they'd lived a, a life for their businesses for, for 10, 20 years. So, um, but I, I don't think the dynamics have changed. I think you have to be prepared for that. But in the tech space, there does seem to be, you know, higher multiples and much more volatile and. But I'm sure we only hear about the successes, you know. So, yeah, uh, that's it. <laughs> there's a whole lot of people who, who who fail. Well, I'll just ask you one last question before I let you go. Think about your, you know, your career and your experience in business in general. If there's just one thing that you that you could, you know, if you had your time again, you'd change. And um, what would it be, and why? I had thought about this. Um, look, there's not much, you know, 
that I would really change. I, I think that um, perhaps, uh, you know, when, when I went into the uh, uh, listed area, I, I thought people had better skills than I did. They were involved in, in um, listed entities. And uh, I think sometimes, you know, you've, you've just got to back yourself in those hard times and just got to stay involved. You know, you sort of, you know, if you've got a big share in a business, you know, you can't sort of give the keys to the palace to everybody else. So I, I think, uh, you know, if you've got a good basic understanding of what you're doing, then, uh, you know, and you want, you need to surround yourself with people then you've just got to surround yourself with very good people who, um, uh, and, and I think at the time I surrounded myself with, with good people, but maybe I, I underpriced, my own sort of uh, uh, attitude to risk and um, and what could happen uh, in a downturn. So I said that that's really the only I think regret I had because I, I think I did I didn't know enough to avoid the GFC, but uh, and we survived. And uh, you know one of the smart things we did was was never take on debt in the, the head company, so we were never in the hands of the banks. But uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I might need to think about that question a bit more, Ken. <laughs> but uh, um, look, I've really got no regrets. It's, uh, it's been a fabulous, um, fabulous um, career. And, uh, you know, I think being in business is a great thing because, you know, I mean, being a professional is fantastic, but, uh, you know, you still do the same thing every day. You know, you're still reading the same documents every day. Being in business, you're meeting new people, having new ideas, meeting bankers. I mean, it, it's it's a fabulous way to lead your life. So, so really no regrets, but just sort of, you know, sometimes if you're making money and you're successful, um, just, you know, keep that belief in yourself, you know, when times are tough. I think that's good advice to, to finish up on. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for joining me on Tell Us Your Story. Thank you very much, Ken. See you later.